It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at woodhousehyundaiofomaha.com. Welcome back, everybody. Once again, we have an individual who has made a major, major impact on the world. Started out as a 1% biker guy, addicted to drugs, all kinds of crime, turned his life around, went to Africa on a mission trip, and made a tremendous impact to children over in Africa, made a tremendous impact on the world. Once again, guests on the Sean Ryan Show are proving that you do not need an army to make an impact in this world. It starts with an idea, and that idea grows into something massive. And before you know it, you've helped thousands and thousands of people. Ladies and gentlemen, I wanna welcome Sam Childers, also known as the Machine Gun Preacher, to the Sean Ryan Show. If you don't mind, please give us a like, leave a comment, let us know what you think of the show, and Please subscribe, hit the subscribe button on the YouTube channel if you're watching this on YouTube. And if you're on iTunes and Spotify, please, please leave us an iTunes or Spotify review if you haven't done that. That's all we're asking, ladies and gentlemen. Without further ado, please welcome Mr. Sam Childers to the Sean Ryan Show. Enjoy the show, everybody. Love you. I got a scholar of the Quran, but a born-again Christian that's going to help to deprogram these children because they're so much programmed under the Quran, believing that every every person they kill that's a believer or a non-believer, they believe they're getting more rewards for when they get to heaven. I had everything I wanted. It didn't mean nothing to me anymore. All I could remember was children starving, children hungry. They stopped us on the road and they said, Sam, you gotta come quickly, you gotta come quickly, you know? So we're running through the jungle, me and a few guys, and we have our guns and, we, you know, ammo bags on and everything. And here was a big tree. And these rebels nailed children to the tree. There was a time that Kony was coming in to South Sudan, Juba. I went there with one of my sniper rifles. I was going to greet him on the road. And they said, we just figured out who you are. There's no way you're going to be able to do this crusade. Coney called the radio station and said, if you do this crusade, he's coming here to kill you. Well, I'd done the crusade with a grenade in each pocket and a pistol in my pack. I was one of them that he said he was going to kill that he hasn't. Serious question. Who wants to take the best shit of their entire life? Right here, I do. How do you do that? You go with Bub's Naturals Collagen Protein. 
you rip the thing open, you put it in your coffee, you stir it up, and you're on your way. Now, if taking the best shit of your entire life doesn't interest you, Calogen will also give you beautiful hair, great skin, and nails to die for. So, and you'll recover a lot quicker in between workouts if that's your thing. So now that we got the good shit out of the way, get it? <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit about Bubs the company. Bubs is a tribute company to Glenn Bubs Doherty, who was a Navy SEAL and a CIA contractor who died defending American freedom in Benghazi, Libya. Bubs donates 10% of all proceeds to veteran organizations like the Glenn Doherty Foundation and 100% of all proceeds on Veterans Day. Let me tell you about Bubs' latest product that helps with energy, healthy digestion, your immune system, and your metabolism. Bub's Naturals Apple Cider Vinegar Gummies, which actually taste so damn good that I ate all 60 of them the first, <laughs> the first night I got them. They taste amazing, and man, I got a lot of energy now. Anyways, go to bubsnaturals.com, use promo code SEAN to take 20% off your order Thank you, Bubs Naturals, for being a sponsor of The Sean Ryan Show. Sam Childers, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. I am over the moon that you're sitting here today. I've been really excited about this interview. We've been trying to get it out here for a long time, and, well. and now here you are. <laughs> but uh, just a quick introduction. So you're a motorcyclist, an author, a humanitarian, part of the 1% Detroit Highway Motorcycle Club member, recipient of the Mother Teresa Award for Social Justice. You founded Angels of East Africa, which has orphanages in South Sudan, Uganda, and Ethiopia, which are full of children that you've saved from the South Sudan war zone. And they made a movie about it, a big Hollywood production, also known as the machine gun preacher. I'm so happy to have you here. <clears throat> God's but good. He is. He is. You know, you're a one of a kind guest on any show. I've never had anybody on mine like you at all. And and um, you know, I spent a lot of time researching you. I watched your documentary, the movies. I've read about you, um, and. When I started this show, the premise was to help people with wow. mental health, with PTSD, and I never made my business about money. And then as it went on, I started making it about money and things started getting complicated. I still, you know, try to help a lot of people. And through my research for you for this episode, it made me realize that I need to get back to what I was originally doing and yeah. that, that money is not going to bring me any fulfillment. And uh, I just want to say thank you for yeah. bringing me back but to that. But unfortunately, we live in a world where if you don't bring in money, you won't be able to do a show like this. That's true. So I, that is I true. mean, <clears throat> I think we have to balance that all out. You know, uh, 
I know I wouldn't be able to do the work that I do in East Africa if we didn't have the money. Yeah. I've always, I've always had this motto that if you're doing good, if you're injecting good into the world, then good's going to come back to you. Yeah, but that's not true, though, because, you know, if you look at a lot of nonprofits, our nonprofits, a pretty high nonprofit on a dollar actually spent in the field, always over 50 cents. The average nonprofit out there is 15 cent and less. Some of the big name nonprofits are only like a nickel on a dollar, you know. Wow. So organizations like yours and organizations like mine, we have to balance it out and we have to make sure that we're making money because you're not going to be able to do your good shows without good cameras, you know. So That's very I true. I look at it a little bit different. That's very true. <clears throat> but... Um, well, moving on, <clears throat> well, for starters, everybody gets a gift. Wow. On the show. So just a little something for your travels. All right. Well, thank you. I don't know what all it is, but it'll be used. <laughs> it's, it's Vigilance Lead Gummy Bears. Is it really? Yeah, we got our own gummy bear line. <laughs> it's, 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 is, it, is, is it one of the CBD gummy bears? No, just <laughs> no, candy. can't eat many at one time. <laughs> just candy. All right. But... Um, <clears throat> So, I want your life story. So, you, the 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 arc in your life story is yeah. just incredible, and uh, I think it gives a lot of people hope. You've done amazing things in the world. And yeah, I tell you what, I'll kind of skip through it because it can be pretty long and pretty complicated. But uh, I was born in a Christian home, and a lot of times when people hear my testimony or they hear anybody's testimony that got in a lot of trouble, uh, the guy with the bad testimony always tries to blame it on someone from his family. I couldn't, I had the perfect mom and dad. My dad was in the Marines, he was an ex-Marine, tough guy, but born again Christian. My mom, I think only sinned three times in her whole life when she gave birth to me and my two brothers. Uh, <laughs> My mom, I always describe her, she came out of the womb speaking in tongues. Very religious woman and good woman. And she actually just died this past year and died at 87 years old. But I had no reason to get in trouble. But when I was a little kid, five years old, six, seven, eight, even 10 years old, if you'd have said, Sam, what are you going to be when you grow up? I'd have told you I'm going to be a preacher one day. But at 11 years old, <clears throat> going to the secular school, I have a lot of, I have a big heart for kids here in America that's in a secular school. They go through things that we forgot about. And at 11 years old, I started wanting to fit in with the kids that I thought was cool. I'm thinking in my mind, man, those kids are cool. They're smoking cigarettes, smoking marijuana. And all of a sudden, I started doing what they was doing. So by the time that I was 12 years old, I'm going to booze parties, 13 years old, eating acid, popping pills, 14 years old, snorting Coke. I'm fitting in. Everybody likes Sam Childers. I become the most popular kid in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Grand Rapids, Minnesota. Everyone knew me. At 15 years old, I didn't care if I fit in anymore. I found myself waking up every morning putting a needle in my arm, shooting up heroin, cocaine. At 15, you At started At 15 heroin. years old, yeah. I left home before my 16th birthday. I started selling drugs. Like the documentary, 
there's a doco out there that was done. Uh, a guy that they interviewed said, I never known anyone at 15 or 16 years old that walked around with a suitcase full of drugs. And uh, I did. I mean, I, I'm talking when I was 16, 17 years old, I would have $50,000 worth of drugs in my possession. Nowadays, we're talking a quarter of a million, 300,000. That's what they'd be worth. So I started selling drugs in Grand Rapids, and then I started running drugs from Grand Rapids, Minnesota, Minneapolis to Chicago, Chicago to Orlando, Florida. Uh, there was a time in my life I became a shotgunner, hired gun for drug deals. My life went out of control. I was in my 20s living in Orlando, Florida, and I'm skipping over a lot. But I'm living in Orlando, Florida, and I get into a really bad bar fight. <clears throat> that bar fight's what changed my life. And a lot of people, when they get to this part of my testimony, if I'm in a church, People start thinking, oh, that's when he gave his life to the Lord. No, it wasn't. That's when I made up my life, made up my mind, I'm done living this life. And I was in the back of this bar, and there was people got shot, people got stabbed. I was beat up really bad. And I looked at the front door, and I remember I made up my mind, if I make it to that front door, I'm done living this life. <clears throat> I made it to the front door. I went home, told my wife that night, which was from the movie Lynn, and she was a stripper at the time, and I said, we're moving. And she got all worked up because in her heart, she wanted a way out. And she said, what happened? And I says, I got into a fight, and I know someone's going to end up killing me for nothing. See, I'd never had a problem with dying, but I have a problem with what I'm about to die for. If I'm going to die for something, I want it to be worthwhile. I want it to be something that can be written on a tombstone. I don't want to die for nothing for a bar fight or a, a jealous husband or anything like that. I want to die for something worthwhile. So we moved over a thousand miles away back to my hometown where people didn't really knew, uh, know me very well. They, they knew me as a little kid, heard stories about me, but I was able to walk away from the biker world I was able to walk away from friends, anyone that done drugs. I could walk away from drugs. And for two years, I lived a clean life. And my wife started going to church. And over that two years, she would ask me every Sunday, honey, will you go to church? Will you go to church? And I always tell people, you know, if you got a nagging wife, you got to shut them up. Just do what they want, you know. <laughs> So she kept asking me for two years to go to church, and I, I couldn't take it no more. So I wanted to shut her up, so I went to church and gave my life to Christ. And then all of a sudden, I find myself on a mission trip in Africa. Rewind it real quick. You didn't go through any rehabilitation or anything? No, I didn't just... go through any rehab. I mean, at 15 years old, I would usually shoot up three times a day. Yeah, at 15 years old, in the morning. And back in my days, I, I mean, I, I was really heavy into cocaine. And uh, cocaine back then, you had to sit on the toilet when you shot it up. And I, most guys know what I'm saying because it would just relieve you so much, you know. <laughs> but uh, by the time I was 19 years old, I was... And my, my addiction was a really strong addiction. I mean, at 19, 20, 21 years old, I had it all, motorcycles, guns, women, 
drugs. I had it all. But I tell, I tell people, I speak in a lot of rehabs around the world. <clears throat> I've spoken rehabs on this tour. And a lot of people have a hard time grabbing on to my message because you can do it, but you have to want it. That's the biggest problem is, see, sometimes we still want that drugs. We still want that excitement more than we want clean. And it's hard. I understand that, man. I mean, I went through it all. Imagine uh, most of your addicts nowadays got to steal. They got to steal to be able to support their habit. I, I just sold drugs to support mine. And I didn't sell a little bit. I sold a lot. So I literally, it was a mental game for me. But the only way I did it, see, there was a key. Now, if somebody hears this show and they say, I can't do it, I can't do it, you can do it, but you got to leave all your friends. You got to leave your relatives. You got to leave the club. I left the club world for years. There's a five-year grace. And what I mean by that, so many times people leave, but then a year later or six months later, they say, I'm going back to help my friends. You're not going to be able to help your friends because it takes five years to be clean. For me, I left it all for 10 years. 10, 10 years. years of my life, I never had a drink. I never had a problem with drinking. Now, I love to have a glass of scotch now, good scotch. I drink the most expensive scotch I can get because I know I won't drink much. <laughs> you know, just maybe a couple <laughs> drinks every night. But I mean, I left it for over 10 years. Now I can be at the clubhouse, I can be with friends, family, anybody drinking, doing drugs. It don't bother me, don't affect me. I don't have any crave for it. Don't even think about doing any drugs, you know. That's incredible. <clears throat> yeah, but I only done it because I moved a thousand miles away. I didn't know a drug dealer. I didn't know anybody and for 10 years I kept myself away. If I even thought somebody smoked marijuana and I never had a problem with marijuana, but I, I you know, I, I say marijuana is a gateway drug. You know, a lot of people don't like me to say that, but for me it was, that's what I started on. But anyone that I thought done any kind of drugs or went out to bar rooms or done anything, I stayed away from them until my feet was grounded. Now I can be around it all. It don't bother me. <clears throat> so you moved, you moved a thousand miles away and you got into... Moved from Orlando, Florida to Central City, Pennsylvania. Wow. And then two years later, my wife was going to church for two years. And two years later, I went to a church service and the man was from Africa. He was a white guy preaching. <clears throat> and that's the day that I gave my life to the Lord. And, and I, I am a preacher. I, I, surrendered, I surrendered my life to the Lord that day. But I went back the next day because I wanted a little bit more. Well, this preacher, he starts praying for me at the altar. He takes a couple steps back and he starts prophesying, telling me what I'm going to do. And he starts telling me I'm going to Africa. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, I ain't going to Africa, I'm a white man. Why would I go to Africa? That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. Then he starts telling me I'm gonna be in a war. And I'm thinking, I'm already married, I ain't gonna be in another war. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, I'm getting mad at this preacher. I literally just gave my life to the Lord, okay? And, and I was still a little hot-headed. So in my mind, I start thinking, I'm gonna have to beat the snot out of this preacher. So I walk outside the church. And I waited and waited, smoking my cigarette, waiting, waiting on this preacher to just walk through the door. He comes out. I start cussing him out. 
I start, don't tell me I'm going to Africa. I'm not going to go to Africa. I'm not going to be in a war. Those people got in a problem over there. They can live in their problem. And all this preacher did was looked at me with a big smile. I think they teach you that in preacher school, how to smile. Looks at me with a big smile. And he said, we'll see. That was June of 1992. In uh, 1994, God just kept moving on me to go to Africa, go to Africa. So I started putting money in Africa. I had a contracting company, building homes, painting, roofing. And I was making big money. And then 95, I was making more money. 1996, I literally put $25,000 or more into Africa, thinking, God, wouldn't you rather have my money? God didn't want my money. He wanted me to go. So in 1998, <clears throat> in my mind, I'm thinking, I know what I'll do. I'm going to trick God. <laughs> I'm going to go to Africa on a mission trip. So I went on a mission trip to Africa thinking this is a one-time thing. And like the movie showed, there was an explosion, and I went running through the bush and found a young kid that stepped on a landmine, but that's not what happened. What happened, there was a village that was raided by the Lord Resistant Army. And I'm a hillbilly, okay? I'm not, I have no education. I got to see it from my own eyes. I got to touch it. I'm the one that had to touch the holes in Jesus' hands uh, just to know it, he was real, you know? So we were walking around in this village in the bush looking for children that were hiding. And I come across the body of a small child that stepped on a landmine. The child may have been eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, I couldn't really tell because there was nothing from the waist down. I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. But it was a fresh body of a child that stepped on this landmine. And I remember walking around the body, and I said, God, how can this happen in the world today? And we don't hear about it. I mean, we don't hear about landmines killing children in, in South Sudan. And I said something. I didn't realize what I was saying until today, until now. I said, God, I'll do whatever it takes to help these people. Well, more than two and a half decades later, I'm still there. Uh, Africa is my home. I'm a dual citizen. My wife is African now but I'm still there rescuing children. When you, <clears throat> before we get into that, what was it that made you walk into that church? Your wife had been going for two years. You had not. You know, I always knew God was real. You know, I always knew he was real. And I am a preacher. I'm not a religious person, but I know that uh, if you look close into my life, the businesses, the money that I have made, the money that I make. If you look close into my life and you're a total atheist, there has to be a God because there's no possible way. Like right now in my life, I work about 560 people a day. I don't even have a high school education. I have no education at all. I'm a motivational speaker around the world. I spoke for Mercedes-Benz, Fuso, Harley-Davidson. I mean, some of the biggest manufacturers in the world have me come in to speak to their people. How can that happen? And then when you keep looking a little bit closer, many, many years ago when I was a young guy all the way up into my 20s, I used to stutter every other word. 
I couldn't speak. Not stutter a little bit, every other word. Wow. And then God healed me on a mountain when I was hunting elk. So, I mean, if you hear the whole story, even if you say, I don't believe, what about this? What about that? You know, just research my story and you will believe and you will know there has to be a God out there. Wow. Back to Africa. You found the, the body. Yeah. Come back to America. I was here for three months. Had a very, you know, like the movie showed me, had a successful uh, construction company. The movie didn't show nothing what I had. I had a camper trailer. I had a four-wheeler. I had a motorcycle. I had a gun collection, probably 100 guns. I would go hunting on three to four weeks a year, hunting trips, Colorado, all over the place. I was a successful contractor. So you, had a, you had a big contracting business. I'd done union and non-union companies. Sometimes I would work, you know, uh, 50, 60 men, always worked uh, 15 to 20. I was a successful contractor. My last year was $1.8 million of building houses and, and doing construction work. For Pennsylvania, that's pretty successful company. But I come back and it didn't mean nothing to me. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't walk by my gun cabinet. I had guns that were uh, special built for hunting elk. I had a 340 Weatherby with a Leopold scope. I had everything I wanted. It didn't mean nothing to me anymore. All I could remember was children starving, children hungry, uh, children dying because of some crazy warlord. And I knew I could do something because along with that first trip, we were ambushed. We, we went into another village and we was ambushed. And when the van got ambushed, you know, it had other missionaries in the van. Everybody run out and hide and, you know, started hiding in holes and, and hiding in the bush. And the first thing I looked for was a gun, <laughs> you know, because I knew I, 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 I'm too fat to run, so I'm going to fight, you know. And so I knew I could do something. So three months later, I found myself back in Africa in the heat of the moment. Uh, and I will say that many of the guys, you know, back in those days, there was good rebels, there was bad rebels, that was it. The good rebels are still there to this day, the SPLA. And uh, I, was, I was with some guys when we got into another firefight. We had to stop our vehicle, we got ambushed on the road. And I'll never forget, I grabbed my AK as I was getting out of the car and I was running to jump in this ditch. When I got into the ditch, I cocked it laying there and I was so scared, you know, like maybe maybe you and other guys were Rambo in the bush, but I, I'm gonna tell you the truth, I get scared to this day. Now I don't hear them shooting at me anymore because they don't hear too good, you know. But I, I, I was scared and I'm laying there and I looked up, I peeked up, peeked over this ditch and here was the soldiers that were with me, these SPLA soldiers, ding from the movie, walking down the center of the road, firing their guns, and they're getting shot at. And I remember laying in the ditch and I said to myself, oh my God, they're all gonna get killed and then they're gonna capture me, they're gonna torture me, this is what's going through my mind. And I looked back up and I seen the rebels turn and they started running. And that day I realized that if you 
fought the fight by running towards it, the enemy would run. And uh, so from that day forth, about every ambush I was in after that, I was right with them, you know, hitting it right on, you know. And I got so bad at doing it that even some of the guys, like Peter, Peter and me was really close, and he told me one day, you got to stop testing God. God wants you to get in the ditch sometimes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what Can you describe a little bit about the conflict that was going on in Sudan at the time? You know, the biggest problem was the president of northern Sudan, Bashir. Bashir was like the president leader of northern Sudan, so he was paying all these rebel groups, which the guy that I fought for a number of years, over a decade, was Joseph Kony, the leader of the LRA. But he was financed by President Bashir. But see, Bashir would send his Antonov in. You know, they were Russian Antonov, Russian pilots, and they would fly into South Sudan and they would drop these Antonov. That's my biggest problem why I can't hear. I mean, I was in bombings where my head would just shake for days and days. I didn't have earplugs or anything, you know. I, all I had to put over my ears was my hands, you know. But uh, Bashir was the man that was financing everything. And at one time, Bashir even had a bounty on my head. Uh, you know, people say it was Coney. It wasn't Coney. Coney, Coney tried to kill me many times. But Bashir had a bounty on my head that even had a warrant for my arrest if they could ever arrest me for aiding and abetting rebels. And that you can even find on the internet. Bashir, thank God, you know, everybody like, like what goes on in the darkness will come to the light. The word even says it. Bashir now is in prison. You know, he was overthrown by the people of northern Sudan. So he's in prison waiting to be uh, tried and everything, you know. Now, the Hague actually tried him a number of years ago. He's the, he's the only president of a country that was, uh, that was guilty for uh, genocide, you know. So, so I think he'll be in prison the rest of his life if not killed. What were they, why did they keep hitting your orphanages? And well, your you know, there was a, there was a uh, uh, Dateline NBC done a story on me, and it came out July of 2005. You can, uh, you can Google it. I think it was called the Night Commuters or something like that, but it's easy to find. Just Dateline NBC, Machine Gun Preacher, J Joseph Coney. Uh, at one time, they, they called Joseph Coney the worst terrorist in the world because he didn't have an agenda. His reasoning for doing all this stuff would change every day. You know, so it made him the worst terrorist in the world. You know, most terrorists, they got one thing they're focusing on. You couldn't tell with this guy. He was like a madman, you know. So he, he was just a crazy madman killing people for no reason, and it would change every day, you know. And his biggest thing is he wanted to brand his victims. Uh, he would cut the nose off of elderly, cut the breast off of women that was nursing their uh, children. You know, he would cut the hands and fingers, you know, off of women, you know. He, he wanted to brand his people to scare them, and he wanted to take over uh, because of people's fear. Jeez. <clears throat> do you want to talk about some of the stuff that they were making the children do? 
You know, <clears throat> to this day, and there's even things going on in the Congo <clears throat> that's still going on to this day. You know, they'll, they'll make you children kill their parents. You know, uh, what Coney used to do, and Coney was big on it, Coney would make the children kill their parents. And, you know, a lot of people here in America, they'll say, how can a child do that? Very easily. Because it was done through intimidation. You know, and you got to put yourself in that parent's place. They would tell the parent, if your son doesn't kill you, we're going to kill your son in front of you slowly. Any parent loves their child enough, they don't want to see their child die. So all of a sudden, they brainwash the parent where the parent thinks his only hope of for their child to live is for their child to kill him. So the parent will literally plead to the child with tears in her eyes, it's okay. You can go ahead and do this, and you're going to live. Because that parent has so much love for their child, they don't want to see their child be killed. So that's the, that's the beginning of the intimidation of what these warlords will do in Africa, maybe around the world. I only know Africa. So that child, once they kill the parent, that child's mind is there's nothing they can do in life any worse than what they just did. So they're just totally gone, you know. So that child, the only, the only hope for that child is to rescue them uh, and to begin to deprogram what these warlords have placed in them. Most of these warlords, Coney uh, claimed to be Muslim at one time, uh, the, the ones that I'm dealing with now are Islamic State, ADF, and ISIS, you know, and they have, they have no heart even for their own family, even for their own kind. They don't care if they kill 20 Muslim to kill one Christian or one non-believer, you know. So there's only one way to deal, deal with these people. You have to get them on their grounds where you're not going to harm other civilian people. In your documentary, you talk about how in America we're very cautious about our kids being in the streets. Yeah. And but when you got over there, you had mentioned that kids go to the streets for safety. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> right now, now the Coney War is finished. Gulu is an unbelievable town now. I mean, I love going to Gulu now. But Gulu, 20 years ago, had something called the night commuters. And those children, more than 50,000 children, would walk from the village into the streets and sleep on verandas for safety. But there's something that people don't hear about now. In the Congo, there's a bridge. And that bridge, every morning, over 25,000 women and children cross that bridge back into Congo to work their crops, to uh, 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 go and make a living for themselves. But every evening before dark, over 25,000 women and children cross that bridge back into Uganda for safety. You know, Uganda now, they had a lot of difficulties over the years, but I call Uganda the, the land of milk and honey. The president is an unbelievable man. 
My only worry is I hope he can stay on for a long time because he's a good president, he's born again, he's about justice, and he doesn't tolerate uh, these uh, warlords. So right now, that happens every day on that bridge, 25,000 people, morning, evening, back for safety of Uganda. Wow. Do you see that every day? When you know, you, I only see it, I just started working in the Congo just, just for six months or so now. Uh, so I've been in zone one in the area of Congo. Uh, you know, there wasn't the restrictions 20 some years ago when I was rescuing, over two and a half decades ago, when I was rescuing children in South Sudan, there wasn't all the, not restrictions, there wasn't all the requirements as there is now. Like. What we had to do is I can't put these children that we rescue in my orphanages. You can't. It could harm the other children. So I have a farm in northern Uganda. We, we built a dormitory where the children are going to be around adults, you know. But I had to get a scholar of the Koran, but now a born-again. I, I got a scholar of the Koran, but a born-again Christian that's going to help to deprogram these children because they're so much programmed under the Quran, believing that every, every person they kill that's a believer or non-believer, they believe they're getting more rewards for when they get to heaven. So these kids gotta be deprogrammed. Uh, every three months, I gotta have a mental evaluation done on the children, and then they'll be kept in this particular place, whether it's my truck stop in northern Uganda, I'm building a dormitory there, or the farm in northern Uganda, there'll be a dormitory there. Uh, they will be deprogrammed and worked with for at least a year. Uh, after they, they're evaluated, if we feel they can be placed back with other children, then we'll put them into schools and start their life all over again. But it's a process that's going to be done slowly. Good. Yeah. How many children are in that particular situation? We're talking about an unbelievable amount, thousands upon thousands of children. You know, these warlords, especially of Africa, most of them are coward and they're fighting for a no cause. So they can't get people to enlist in their military or enlist in their cause because they don't have a cause. So what they do is they, they kidnap children and they intimidate children and force children to do the fighting for them. You know, it's only a handful of warlords, but they go after hundreds and thousands of children. Damn. <clears throat> When you started this, when you went over there the first time, came home, went back, how did you get started? How did you find? You know, I, I speak in a lot of churches and seminars, and you always get people that say, I got a vision. I got a vision, or they'll say, especially Christians, will say, I got a vision from God, and when God gives me the money, I'm going to step out and do it. You'll probably do nothing. Okay, if you're gonna wait till you get the money, you'll probably do nothing. When I started this whole thing, when I had the vision of starting this orphanage, I didn't have money. 
I would fly to Africa on one-way tickets. I had enough money to buy some uh, uh, shovels and slashers and machetes, and I started clearing the land, you know. I didn't have nothing. And this went on for years, and I believe as a Christian, I believe that God watched me for years. Now, some Christians will say, oh, God, I help you right away. Well, that could be for you, but for me, he watched me. And I believe that he watched me for eight years until he seen I was serious and I was steadfast and I wasn't going to quit. You know, I've been telling everyone there's a second documentary they're starting to film. There's a second movie getting ready shortly to go into production. And people say, well, why? Why? You know, it's been because I never stopped. And the name of that documentary is Never Stopped. And I believe no matter who you are, success comes through never stopping. No matter what the storms, trials, or whatever you got to go through, never stop. What was the first step? Was it an orphanage? Was it a church? Well, for me, I think the first step for me was I had to get it in my head. I was willing to let it all go. And like the movie Machine Gun Preacher, it did have some things that was accurate. You know, Hollywood will take the truth and they put a twist to it. Uh, one of my first steps was I took my gun collection. And it was, it was hard for me what I did. I knew I was getting ready to sell my gun collection. You know, I'm a hillbilly, okay? So you got guns that your dad gave you. You got guns that your uncles gave you, you know? So your guns mean something. And... They, guns weren't used to harm people. I was growed up, you know, hunting squirrel and hunting rabbits, you know. And so there were some of my guns that really meant a lot. So I called my brother and I called my nephew over and the guns my uncle gave me, the guns my dad gave me, I gave to my brother and nephews because I knew I was going to sell everything. And I sold my entire gun collection, sold them all, kept a gu couple guns just to keep around the house. Deer rifles, sold them all. And so that was my biggest thing that I had to do. And then I started selling out a fishing boat, Bass Tracker fishing boat. I had a camper trailer. For the first two years that I was in Africa, I didn't ask anybody for anything. And then all of a sudden, I found myself on the third year flat broke. I spent all my money, spent all, all my toys, I sold, and I found myself having financial problems. Sold my construction company out. So on that third year is when I started going out to churches and, and uh, letting people know what I was doing. But it was still a struggle until the eighth year. And the eighth year in, they were, getting to, they were starting to repossess my home. And my wife called me. I was in Africa, and she said, uh, Sam, we just got notice of a sheriff's sale on the house. And I just started this feeding program. I was, I mean, people literally starving. I'm feeding them. And I, I, I asked her, I said, well, how much money do we have? And she said, we got a little over $2,000, and I needed $2,000. And uh, I remember I told her, I said, well, they can have the house. Send me the money. And she said to me, are you sure? And I said, yeah, they can have the house. We'll get another house. And she sent me the money. 
Well, the following week was the sheriff's sale, and a guy came through the night driving from Kentucky, and he drove through the night to my home, and he handed my wife a check for $5,000, and he said, I don't know why I did this, but God told me I had to be here today. So two days before the sheriff's sale, she paid the 2000 some dollars and stopped the sale. And from that time on, that was like eight years into this thing, and uh, I've been over two and a half decades there now. From that time on, I believe God had his hand upon the work. I believe he always watched me, but first he wanted to see that I was going to be steadfast before he jumped on board. Do you know that man? What's, yeah, yeah, I know him, yeah. You keep in touch? You know, I haven't seen him in a long time. You know, right after that, uh, I got tied up with uh, uh, Jesse James. And one of his secretaries was kind of a religious person. <laughs> and uh, so uh, they all thought, well, you can't take money from the, you know, from, from the world, the secular world, and be a Christian. Well, they don't know the Bible very well because <laughs> the Bible says you, you can take money from the kingdom and, or, or excuse me, you, you can take money from the wicked and use for the kingdom. You know, so uh, uh, I mean, I haven't talked to him in many years, but he knows what he did. He knows he saved my house from a sheriff's sale. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's take a, just a real quick break and when we come back, we'll pick up back in Africa. All right. I don't know much, but what I do know is my audience. And I know a lot of you are similar to me. And you probably chew tobacco. I used to chew tobacco too. I chewed it in Afghanistan. I chewed it in Iraq. I chewed it in the sniper hide. I chewed it out of the sniper hide. I chewed it before the op. I chewed it after the op. I chewed it on night vision. I chewed it while I was shooting. I chewed it pretty much all the time. And then I realized it was becoming a problem. My blood pressure started rising. What I really noticed was I started getting lightheaded when I would do strenuous activities. Now I've come a long way since those days and I've quit chewing tobacco, but it wasn't easy. You see, I totally get it. The ritual that goes behind putting that beautiful, tasty dip in your mouth when you're doing whatever it is you like doing when you're chewing tobacco. Now there's an easier way to do it than doing it cold turkey. You see, there's this company out there called Black Buffalo. It's a chewing tobacco alternative. They have cans with nicotine, without nicotine, long cut, and pouches, and they have all of our favorite flavors that we as chewers love, like Black Buffalo Wintergreen, Black Buffalo Straight, Black Buffalo Mint, and for you foo-foo types, they have those flavors too. Blood Orange and even Peach. Black Buffalo is also a proud supporter of active duty military personnel, U.S. veterans, law enforcement, and first responders. Black Buffalo is also made 100% right here in the U.S. of A. Black Buffalo is not recommended for anybody under 21, or if you do not chew tobacco, 
It's not recommended for you either. Black Buffalo products do not contain tobacco leaf or stem. Go to blackbuffalo.com. Use the code SRS to save 15%. That's blackbuffalo.com. Use the promo code SRS to save 15%. Today's episode of The Sean Ryan Show is sponsored by True Classic. This brand makes t-shirts that actually fit, not to mention they're super soft. When you're jacked, finding the right t-shirt can be incredibly frustrating. Most t-shirts are too tight in all the wrong places or way too big and boxy, but that's not the case with True Classic. True Classic has already helped over 2 million men get their fit at an affordable price. Our listeners get access to the absolute best deal they offer. For a limited time only, you're going to get 25% off with the code SRS at trueclassic.com. True Classic clothing is made with every man in mind. You'll get all that quality luxury fit, and the softness you've always wanted but never received from those sandpaper excuses for t-shirts. These things are so soft, you'll actually want to wear them, believe it or not. It's about time to get your fit together. Upgrade your wardrobe with True Classic. Get 25% off at trueclassic.com with code SRS. Free shipping included on purchases over $100, that is 25% off at trueclassic.com. Use the code SRS. Strengthen your core wardrobe with True Classic today. All right, Sam, so moving back into Africa, it looks, it appeared to me that you were building basically compounds or small villages. Yeah. What? How did you find the people to help you? Where was the first one? The first one was in Nimli. Nimli, South Sudan, is the first and one of the oldest orphanages that I have. But our registered, registering that orphanage is still number 006. And we are one of the first. We are one of the longest one of the largest orphanages, not the largest, one of the largest orphanages that never shut down during the war. So we are in South Sudan, the oldest registered orphanage in South Sudan. Never closed one day. We were attacked several times during the war. We were bombed by Russian Antonov, but we never shut down, we never left, and we're still there. But a number of years ago, God said something to me, and, and being, you know, I'm not a real smart guy, so I got to listen close to God. He, he said to me, if you're just going to build another orphanage, why don't you stay home? And I tell the churches this around the world. <clears throat> Most people don't realize in a third world country, if you're in an orphanage, you have to leave at 15 years old. You're out. And most people don't realize that more than 70% of those children end up in prostitution. So I asked the church, what did we really do? 
We build an orphanage, we take all this money from US and Europe and other Western countries, we build this orphanage, we take care of these children till they're 15 years old, they go into prostitution, they die of AIDS or murder or some kind of disease, what did we do? We really done nothing. So I started asking God, God, you gotta explain to me a little bit more. So we started teaching a skill and a trade. So I opened my first restaurant in Uganda, and over the years, we have had over 200 young people go through that restaurant. We taught people how to be a chef, how to be a prep chef, how to be a waitress, how to be a manager. But I noticed it worked, and something that I always say to Americans, a lot of Americans, when we do something and it worked, we only want someone to pat us on the back, and then we really do nothing else. But because of me not having no education, I always wanted to be the best when I do something. So I seen it work, so I wanted to do more. So we started this commercial farm, a little farm in northern Uganda, not quite 200 acres. And I'm no farmer, I've been a biker all my life, you know? And so we started this farm and it started working, and we started feeding more people. We started training people in irrigation and, and farming and ranching. Now that farm is over a 1,000 acres. That farm works more than 80 young people. Uh, we have uh, probably 150 head of cattle. We got sheep there. We got goats there. The last uh, four years, we have gave away all of our rice harvest. Uh, last year, we gave away 50 ton of rice and filled our own storehouses. 50 tons? 50 ton of rice. The year before, we gave away over 90 ton of rice. That's we like 200,000 pounds, right? Yeah, yeah, we have. So last year, we done a crusade in December, a three-day crusade, and we fed over 6,000 people that day, over 6,000 people, but not with rice and beans. I mean, we, I brought cows from the farm. We butchered 20 head of cow and 20 goats, you know, and, and we fed people, you know. So, so our ministry is not just taking care of children. It's giving people hope, you know. It's, and skills. Yeah, and teaching a skill and a trade. Real skills. How did you... How did you, in the movie and in the documentary, it seemed when you when you picked that first spot for the orphanage, mm. it seems as if you had an epiphany in, at that exact you moment know, in time. You know, I believe, now, I would love to sit here in this chair and tell you, you know, I was a non-educated person, but I made myself smart. I can't, okay? The truth is... I believe that my success in life, and I'm a pretty successful guy now, I believe my success from life came from hearing from God. How do you know God speaking to you? You don't want to do it. You know, if you're all happy about doing it, doesn't mean it's not a good thing, but it's probably not God speaking to you. Uh, I recently started a American-style truck stop in northern Uganda. And we were getting ready to buy this uh, little 2.5 acres of ground. And this is why I tell people it's always a big thing to hear the voice of God. 
uh, we went to buy the land and we're getting ready to sign the papers and I could hear God say, it's not big enough. So I told the guy, no, we can't buy it. So it took another year, another year of having this vision, but I knew that two and a half acres wasn't big enough. So finally, we found 10 acres of ground. We started this American-style truck stop. I based it off truck stops in America and also in Europe. So now, I'll skip over a lot, Shell used to have the largest truck stop in East Africa. My God is bigger than Shell. <laughs> now we own the largest American-style truck stop in all of East Africa. It's over 60 acres. There's two restaurants. There's a supermarket, a hardware store. There's hotels, uh, uh, auto mechanic, uh, fuel station, uh, uh, a paint shop, a tire shop. I mean, there's so much on this property, over 60 acres. It's working way over 60 people. I'm not even sure how many work there now, but it's teaching people a skill and a trade and it's making money. That's how we're able to keep operating during COVID and everything. Our ministry is still feeding about 10,000 mills a day. So I believe that my success came through hearing from God. All the way to the initial orphanage where you picked Absolutely. that exact location. Yeah, all the way from the beginning. I remember when I first started clearing the land, I bought the land, the original piece of land. I paid $500 for this land in South Sudan. That's over two and a half decades ago. And I started clearing the land. I had legal papers on it and the government, so-called government, there wasn't a government there, but the people running the government at the time they come out and they said, Sam, you can't build this orphanage here. You can't do this here. The rebels are going to kill you. And I remember throwing my tools down because I was angry. Because I knew, I knew they were right. And I looked at the guy and I said, I know, you tell God. I already told him. But he said it has to be here. Well, I never got killed yet. <laughs> and I'm still there. Still yeah. there. Can you talk about some of the struggles that... I mean, you went from a raw piece of land yeah. to a safety, a, a safety. You know, zone. I think the biggest struggle that I had to deal with over the years, and you still deal with it, and I'm sure you probably had it in your journey so far, is the people that you always think's going to be beside you aren't the people that's next to you. I and can so, relate. so many people that started this thing with me. When times got hard, they would say, Sam, if God was in it, we wouldn't be struggling like this. And they left. But I never quit. You know, I got, I got two books. I got a third book getting ready to come out. Uh, uh, or really counting the small documentaries. There's been a lot of small docos done on me. But the full featured documentary, they're starting another one uh, here soon. The second movie, Machine Gun Preacher. None of that stuff would have happened if I would have quit. So I tell people all the time, don't focus on your friends that's on either side because they will change during your journey. The biggest thing to focus on is you and God. Yeah. What about some of the struggles from the rebels? You know, I never really focused on the struggles from the rebels. You know, 
I never focused on what I, the good things I've done. I always kind of focus on the bad things that I need to still keep doing, you know, because, uh, you know, over the years I lost my marriage and a lot of that was because of money and success, you know. You know, a lot of people, when you get money and success, they think it's time to quit. And I couldn't quit, you know. Uh, so I kind of focus on what I need to do and not on what I've already done because I might end up quitting like a lot of people, you know. Well, you were getting hit a lot. <clears throat> At least it appeared you were getting hit a lot when yeah. you were standing that compound up. Yeah, yeah. And we talked about this downstairs before. I probably should have waited, but... Some of the stuff that I saw in the documentary or the movie, and, and um, I've done a lot of research, so I'm getting yeah. they blend. But you had, you kept getting hit over yeah, and we, over. We, the main orphanage was attacked like three times, uh, but the rebels could never penetrate through a bamboo fence. And like the movie showed, the Hollywood movie showed the rebels burning the orphanage to the ground. If you read my book, Another Man's War, they never burn it to the ground. And and I would love to tell you, oh, man, I was like Rambo, you know, I run out there and fought them off. The truth is they would run up, uh, they would be like 100 meters away, shoot an RPG, and that RPG would do a nosedive before it hit a bamboo fence. We were attacked at least twice with nearly 200 rebels at a time. They could never penetrate through that bamboo 200 fence. 200 rebels? And there was only ever like uh, 10 of us on the other side of the fence. And we would fight them off every time. But it was God miracles. I'll tell you a God miracle. It's in my book, Another Man's War. Uh, one morning, we were getting ready. Uh, me and two soldiers were getting ready to, to, to go into the city. And there was a lot of fighting going on. And back in them days, we didn't have a lot of bullets and stuff, you know. So when we left that morning, each of us had a uh, one full clip for our AKs. And I had a Makarov pistol, an old, just an old German pistol, you know. And I had one clip for it. So we started driving and we got ambushed. And usually when I'd get ambushed, if there was a ditch around, I would drive my car into that ditch because that was the best place to be fighting from. Don't just stop, you know. And so I drove down into this ditch and we started fighting. We fought for over three hours. Boom, 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 boom. You know, I don't care if you believe this. I don't care if the people that hear this believe this. I would love to tell you a different story. Truth is, we fought for over three hours, never reloaded our guns. Are you kidding? You can believe it or not. I'd love to tell you the, a different story, but that's the truth. And when we left there that day, we each had at least a half magazine left. So wow. then you want to hear a better story. <laughs> we, were, we were driving up on the border Bivia used to be the border that was in Uganda. <clears throat> and they said, Sam, they said, you can't go no further. This is the UPDF. He said, you can't go no further. The rebels are attacking Antonov or, or uh, uh, Anaka. And uh, I, said, uh, I said to him, I said, well, we're soldiers, man. Let's all go. And they said, you can't. So I had two trucks and there was five of us. And that day I had Peter and Thomas with me. And I told these guys, I said, well, we're going. 
So I put Peter on the top of one uh, vehicle and put Thomas on the top of the other vehicle. And we started driving down the road. And as we were driving, I didn't know what was happening. Did you ever hear that song, This is Stupid, This is Stupid, This is Stupid? <laughs> well, if you did, I wrote it. So I'm thinking, God, what in the world am I getting into? And I could hear God say, drive faster, drive faster. So I'm driving down the road. I'm, I'm in the lead driving this Land Cruiser as fast as I could drive. Peter's on the roof of my car, barely hanging on on the roof on this luggage cage. And we come around the corner and you could see all the chaos and huts burning and smoke. And God said, tell Peter to start firing. So I hollered up to Peter and he started firing. And when he started shooting that 30 caliber PK, all I could see was people starting to run. And I looked in my rear view mirror to see where Thomas was on top of the other truck. And all I could see was a cloud of dust. I couldn't see nothing else. The enemy ran that day. They thought an army was coming down the road. I would love to tell you we went in there, five of us, and we slaughtered them, you know. But what's so crazy, you'll hear the story. To this day, you'll hear stories tell stories told from the locals about how when the machine gun preacher came in, the bodies were stacked yay high of the rebels. The truth is I didn't even fire a shot. They run. That's truth. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. <clears throat> Where I was going is in, you cleared, we had talked about this downstairs, you cleared all of the brush so that there was nowhere for these guys to hide. Yeah. Then you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a trained military person like you and so many other good soldiers that fought for our country, you know. And uh, I fought because I just felt I had to do something to save children. So, I mean, they, they kept attacking us from the riverside. And, you know, I know guerrilla warfare, okay? So most of these guys are kids and, and even the guys, they don't have shoes, okay? They walk with sandals. And to walk through the jungle, there's cactuses around and, and stuff to step on. So most of your rebels will follow the river edge. That's how they walk. Because if they walk on the river edge, there's nothing to cut their feet up. So they kept attacking us from the river side. So all I knew is we had to stop them from coming from that river. So I just started thinking, all right, what are we going to do? And there were so much trees and brush between us and the river, you, they were almost right up on us, you know. So I told them, cut everything down. We cut everything, every bush, everything down, burnt everything to the ground. And then we went and just told everyone. Don't walk from the river at night. But they even had curfews back in them days. But I told everyone, if you walk from the river, we're going to shoot you. And we never was attacked again up to this day, never have been attacked. We're Now, the everyday civilian is not going to come up with that. They're not going to... Where, where are these tactics... You know, I got it. Like I could say again, I got to give all the credit to God. You know, these were things that I mean, because I'm sitting there. I mean, I've been a biker all my life. I start. I've been a one percenter since I was 15 years old. You know, I knew how to. I knew how to fist fight and use a gun. My my dad brought me and my brothers up as kids 
to be able to shoot with either hand. So I shoot a pistol with either hand, right or left, you know. So that training was from my dad. But I, my, that, all the things that has happened in the bush, I believe it was just the Holy Spirit moving on me. Yeah. Love to tell you a better story, but I can't. (laughs) How many gunfights do you think you've been in? I've been in over 10 ambushes where they ambushed me. I've been in over 10 major battles, and I've had people try to kill me over 10 times. Been shot once and stabbed three times, but that was in the U.S. (laughs) That was all right here in the U.S. It was all in the U.S., yeah. One of the big things that I would like to tell the people out there that might be listening is, you know, because I never quit, we have a project going on. It's called the Bush Kid Project. That Bush Kid Project, we go with a blood lab, we go with doctors, we go with nurses, we go with a security company, which I own. We go deep into the bush on cow trails and minister to sick children that are dying of malaria. You know, a lot of people don't realize in Africa alone, every two minutes, a child dies, malaria. Bacteria infections. They say up to 1,200 children die per day of diarrhea from bad water and bacteria infections. So we've been doing that project for two years now. And we're still doing that project to this day. We're working in the Congo rescuing children. Our feeding program is over 10,000 meals a day. We have five working orphanages, so we're still taking care of children. Uh, We've drilled way over 50 wells over the years. We've repaired over three dozen wells. We've built seven schools from the footer up. We're building the eighth school right now. So because of never quitting, because of people that might be out there listening, we have never stopped because of people supporting and jumping on the uh, 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 mission with us. So we're not an organization that's trying to get started. We're not an organization that's starting to do things. We're an organization that has proven for over two and a half decades we're never going to stop. That's amazing. That really is truly amazing how many people you're helping. Yeah. And something else that I'll, I'll tell for you and I'll tell for a lot of organizations out there, <clears throat> you know, a lot of founders from organizations, they always want to keep their hand on everything. They want to keep everything operating. And what happens when they die, the organization falls apart and it closes. Um For the past seven years, uh, I'm 60 years old now, for the past seven years, it started coming to my mind, wow, if I die, this whole organization's gonna fall. So that means I dedicated my entire life to nothing. So for the past seven years, I started organizing, bringing in key people, that when I leave this world, the organization's gonna go on. I'm a businessman. I don't want to invest in something that's going to fall when the leader dies, you know. So we are finally at that spot that if I die tomorrow, this organization will keep going on. The CEO of the organization is not even 30 years old. 
Her husband, Pastor Michael, is uh, 38 years old. Uh, so, I mean, I know this organization's going to keep going on. My, my wife, I've remarried since my first wife. My wife is only like 37 years old, you know. So, and everybody is sold out. And I have so many young missionaries that's with us now that's in their 20s and 30s that, uh, you know, God's setting it up. I hope I just get to sit down in a rocking chair one day, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> what <clears throat> You've seen a lot of carnage. You've been in a lot of gunfights. You've seen a lot of war. You've seen the some of the worst things that could happen to people. Uh, you just showed me a video downstairs, you know, of, I believe it, you said it was in the Congo. Yeah, of, it was Congo. Of, of yeah. children beheading other children. And, yeah. and, and I guess kind of where I'm going with this is everybody has to compartmentalize that kind of drama yeah. uh, one way or another. Yeah. And when you were coming home, when you were starting this thing up, how did you compartmentalize that kind of, what you were seeing, that kind of trauma from? I believe that what I've been through, <clears throat> I was always through it with God at my side. So I believe that other soldiers like you and so many other good soldiers that fought for our country, I believe that their struggles happened because maybe they didn't have God right at their side. I don't know. But I know that up till now I've been okay. Uh, I don't wake up with bad dreams. The only dream that I ever had a few times was uh, I dreamt somebody told me I couldn't go back to Africa. And I would wake up crying and I'd wake up and, you know, just all stressed out because somebody told me I couldn't go back. So, uh, I mean, uh, the worst thing that I ever seen over the years, and I tell it now and then, because people ask, what's the worst thing you ever seen? One time we were driving in the front lines and uh, they stopped us on the road and they said, Sal, you gotta come quickly, you gotta come quickly, you know? And so I thought, oh, man, we're going to get into a fight. And, you know, once you do it for a few years, you get excited about it, you know. So we're running through the jungle, me and a few guys, and we have our guns and, we, you know, ammo bags on and everything. <clears throat> and we get to where we're going. And here was a big tree. And these rebels nailed children to the tree. And uh, the children were already dead. But it was the most horrible thing trying to get them off the tree because you, you don't want to hurt them. But at the same time, they're already dead, you know. So that's probably the worst thing that I've ever seen. But what I try to stay focused on is the children that we still have to rescue. You know, will there be another machine gun preacher? I don't know. Am I trying to change uh, train one? No. I'm just trying to train someone to love the ones when they're rescued and don't stop working with the children and, and keep, uh, uh, just keep trying to feed the starving people. You know, I don't know if you get into statistics or anything, but statistics right now, 
because of COVID happening, because of the war in Ukraine. Statistics in East Africa, they say that more than 28 million people will die of starvation, East Africa only, and by time? the end of 2023. Can you repeat that? They're saying that in uh, East Africa only, by the end of 2023, because of COVID, because of the war in Ukraine, there'll be 28 million people die of starvation. And, and, and these are statistics that you can find. Big replica pe people like World Food Program is saying this. This is not me, okay? And uh, I know I can't fix the problem, but I can do a little something. So that's our big focus right now. There's something everyone can do. Just because you can't fix it, that don't mean you stop. That's a lot of people. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Yeah. I want to give a big thank you out right now to all the Vigilance Elite patrons out there that are watching the show right now. Just want to say thank you guys. You are our top supporters and you're what makes this show actually happen. If you're not on Vigilance Elite Patreon, I want to tell you a little bit about what's going on in there. So. We do a little bit of everything. There's plenty of behind the scenes content from the actual Sean Ryan show. On top of that, basically what I do is I take a lot of the questions that I get from you guys or the patrons and then I turn them into videos. So we get, right now there's a lot of concern about self-defense, home defense, crimes on the rise all throughout the country, actually all throughout the world. And so, we talk about everything from how to prep your home, how to clear your home, how to get familiar with a firearm, both rifle and pistol, for beginners and advanced. We talk about mindset, we talk about defensive driving. We have an end of the month live chat that I'm on at the end of every month where we can talk about whatever topics you guys have. It's actually done on Zoom. You might enjoy it, check it out. And if Zoom's not your thing, or you don't like live chats, like I said, there's a library of well over 100 videos on where to start with prepping, all the firearm stuff, pretty much anything you can think of, it's on there. So anyways, go to www.patreon.com slash vigilanceelite, or just go in the link in the description. It'll take you right there. And if you don't want to, and you just want to continue to watch the show, that's fine too. I appreciate it either way. Love you all. Let's get back to the show. All right, Sam, we're back from the break. <laughs> yeah. And during the break, you're bringing up some yeah, pretty all interesting of, all stuff. All of my stories are in my first book and my second book. First book is Another Man's War. And my second book is Living on the Edge. And then my third book is The Most Likely. So uh, uh, The Most Likely would be out this, this coming new year. But there was a time that Kony was coming in to South Sudan, Juba, for a peace talk. So I went there with one of my sniper rifles. I was going to greet him on the road. But uh, he was supposed to stay at the Bridge Hotel. So I went and got a room at the Bridge Hotel, and his mom was staying there. Were you going to kill him? 
I was going to greet him. I was going to be his welcome committee. And uh, uh, so he ended up not coming. He didn't come in. So anyways, the morning that I went out to eat, uh, uh, his mom and the other people that was with his mom, uh, they dusted me. And, you know, I don't know if you know much about the African way of killing people. They'll, they'll dust your food. They'll have a little bit of it in their hand, and it's a real fine dust. And when you're getting your food or you turn your head, they'll just and blow it on your food. Well, I got dusted, and I, I, I almost died. Yeah, almost died. What is it? What's the chemical? I'm not sure. You know, it's just, it's all herbal stuff, witch doctors. You know, everyone knows Coney. You know, and this is not me talking. Coney said at one time when the ant died, he took her demons. So he said he had 260-some spirits that gave him his orders what he was going to do. And his, mo his mom was the same way. And everyone that run with the mom and Coney, you know, they were all into witchcraft and devil stuff and everything. But, but my, my liver started shutting down and everything. And I'll never forget, I went back into my room and within about three, four hours, I was deathly sick. And I knew I that was That fast. Yeah, three to four hours after eating my food, I was deathly sick. And one of the guys, Ding, Ding was with me from the movie, The Real Ding. Ding's your right-hand man. Yeah, well, Ding, Ding's still in the SPLA. He's a, he's a, a, I believe Ding now is a captain now, but I still see him, still talk to him and everything. Well, Ding and the other guys that was with me, Peter was with also, they said, uh, Sam, you got poisoned. And so I thought I was going to die. And I remember laying in my bed for hours, and I said, God, I ain't afraid of dying. But do you realize how you're going to look if they haul my body out of this room? I said, God, this is all on you. I said, God, you, you got to heal me. I said, God, I want you, please, God, just touch me and heal me that I can walk out of here tomorrow morning and walk to that buffet and get my food. And the next morning, I could barely walk. And stuff was just coming out of me, like all the liquids and everything. I could barely walk. But I got up and I said, God, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk out. And I walked out that morning. And I remember looking over at the lady sitting at her table, Joseph Coney's mom. And I told her, I says, I'm still looking for your son. And I literally said that and I could barely move. I mean, I literally at the time thought I was still dying. But I wanted her to know that the God that I serve was bigger than any poison she could give to me. Yeah. And Coney has killed, successfully killed everybody that he's ever put a hit out on. You know, yeah, right. Coney, everyone that he would say he was going to kill, he always killed. Uh, and, and it just slipped my mind, one of his right-hand men, uh, and it's in my book, but... Uh, Oh, I, maybe to come back before I finish telling the story. But they were sitting at a table and they're talking and he just picked up a pistol and shot him in the forehead. And uh, he told everyone, he's, 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 I didn't kill him, he's just asleep. <laughs> but Coney was a wild man. I mean, everyone that he would say he would kill, he would kill. And I was one of them that he said he was going to kill that he hasn't. 
And I'll, like I told him, I'd done a, I'd done a crusade in Gulu one time, a preaching crusade. And the, the, people in, the people in town, the government people came to me and they said, we just figured out who you are. There's no way you're going to be able to do this crusade. Coney called the radio station, said, if you do this crusade, he's coming here to kill you. Well, I'd done the crusade with a grenade in each pocket and a pistol in my back, but I <laughs> preached it and I told him, I said, listen, if you can't make it, tell me where you're at and I'll come to your house for dinner. You know, so Co Joseph Coney, as far as I'm concerned, was a coward, still a coward, and he will pay for the crimes that he's done. I hope he does. Yeah. I really hope he does. <clears throat> so what are you guys getting into now? I mean, it took you, how long did it take you to get fully set up? You, you know, I, I still don't believe we're fully set up to where I would like to see it come to, you know. I would love to see before God takes me out of this world, I'd love to see our organization feeding 20, 25,000 meals a day. I'd love to see our farm be a few thousand acres, you know. My goal for this next year, you know, because of COVID, because of the war in Ukraine, our food bills have doubled. Like for what our farm would produce now, our main food bill was about 12000 a month. That's just food. That's not payroll, nothing else. 12000 more dollars we spent on food. It's up to twenty-eight to twenty-eight to $24,000 to $28,000 a month. That's what our food bill is now. So for this new year, I would like to grow 40 to 50% of the crops that we use to feed people. I'd like to grow on our farm, you know. So uh, I'd love to see a lot of expansion on our farming. Uh, I'd love to see some more children homes built. And uh, we do a lot here in the U.S. as well, you know. Yeah. What, um, <clears throat> with the kids that you get in the, in the movie, it, there's a lot of separation. The kids are ripped from their family. Maybe yeah. they were forced to kill their parents. They're, they're, they're separated from their siblings. Have you been able to reunite any yeah, families? Yeah, and, and I, I got a good story for you, too. Our biggest thing is we don't want to keep children if they have immediate family. We want to place those children back into their homes. <clears throat> but a number of years ago, and this, this happened, one of the big magazines, I think it was the Inquirer, the Inquirer magazine, I believe it was, they'd done a story on me. Well, anyways, the story was about a father that found his child. And, um, uh, and, and how this father found the child was through his brother. Uh, one of the local newspapers in Uganda had done a story on me at Christmas time. And it was kind of a story about the machine gun preacher rescuing children. And it had all these children around me. Well, the uncle was in Gulu and read the newspaper and seen this child. Well, the uncle seen it was a child that was his brother's son. So he came to where I have a home in Gulu. I've been in Gulu over 20 some years. He come to the children's home and so they called me out. I happened to be there, and I come out, and he was pointing at the paper, and he's speaking in their local language. And he said, this child, is he here? Is he here? And just so happened the child was there. So I brought the child to the gate, 
And when he seen the child, this uncle passed out, just passed out on the ground because it was the same child that they raided a village, the LRA, and they raided a school and they chopped these children all up. And the parents and family members had to come to this school where all these pieces of bodies was. And they took pieces of bodies that they thought was their child home to bury. So here the father and the mother and the family, excuse me, took all these pieces of body that they thought was their son and buried this child. Well, this child was one that escaped and hid in the bush. And then he was dramatized really bad, but we rescued him. So here uh, I told him, I said, I can't give you the child. I said, you go bring the father. And uh, because the child was still mentally on, on not, you know, stable. So here a week or so later, he come back right at Christmas time. You know, the story was done before Christmas to kind of, you know, get everybody in the Christmas spirit of me rescuing children. And uh, here the father came and the father fell to his knees and just fell to the ground and couldn't believe it. Well, the son recognized the father and everything, even though he was so dramatized. But that was one of the good stories of placing a child back. You know, so imagine you buried your son. You had his body in your hands, but it wasn't your son. And then you find your son still alive. You know, it's a good story. Wow. What's the, what's the time separation on that? You know, it was probably, I'm going to say, almost two years or so. Two years. Yeah, yeah it was almost two years. What, what's happening now, you know, I turned 60. I've been in Africa over two and a half decades. And I believe there's a lot of things, there's a lot of things we try to block out. And uh, so you try to block out a lot of things. So there's some things you don't remember, you know but you try to remember a few good stories. How many of these children <clears throat> still have hope that they're gonna You know, be our organization uh, is one of the only organizations out there that when you finish school and you leave our organization, if you're 70% or better in your uh, class, we will send you on to university. So before COVID, I had 20-some kids in university. I mean, you, you don't even want to see our school fees. Our school fees are ridiculous. Even now, I have about eight kids in university right now as we speak, you know. So, so our organization, we don't only create jobs for you to learn a skill and a trade. We give you the opportunity to go to university. Uh, we got some very good su success stories. You know, in Africa, <clears throat> you don't get a lot of, you don't hear of a lot of organizations working with women. It seems like all the, all the programs are for men, you know. So on our farm, we built a, uh, a two-story house, six bedroom, four bathroom with cottages on the outside, big rooms. And we built this house to teach young ladies from Africa that was involved in the war. You know, in a lot of African villages, if you're a young woman 
that you, you may have been used as a sex slave, you were a wife to the rebel, you had children to the rebels, they don't want you back in the village anymore. So a lot of these women will just walk into the bush and sit down and die because they have no skill, they have no trade, they have no future. So we built this house to teach young women a skill and a trade. We teach them how to clean a house and how to make a bed. And people say, well, what? I, I, most people should know that. If you were raised in a mud hut with a grass roof, you don't know how to make a bed. But we have got, and if you're on a passport from East Africa, you can travel anywhere in East Africa. We got unbelievable amount of women that are working in hotels, nice hotels because of the skill and trade that we taught them in this house. And we have one lady particular, I like to tell her story. She wanted to work in the kitchen with me. I, I had three restaurants at one time and I love to cook. I don't call myself a chef. I just love to cook and eat, you know? So she wanted to know everything that a Mzungu, a white person liked to eat. So I, you know, <laughs> Spanish omelets, uh, 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 eggs Benedict, you know, she wanted to know all this stuff, pancakes, uh, French toast, waffles. She wanted to know everything that us Mzungus like to eat. For two years, I taught her everything I could teach her and how to make a simple lunch, simple sandwiches and hamburgers and stuff. And two years later, she goes into Gulu and she opens up a little restaurant. And this little restaurant, you could barely put 10 people inside and 10 people outside. You would stand in line to wait to eat in this restaurant. It was just amazing because she learned how to do this just the way we love it. And then she even got a bigger place. And now she got married, moved to the other end of Uganda and has another restaurant. But these are some success stories of people that got into our hands and learned a skill and a trade. I've always said, if you wanna change a nation, it's not by handouts. You know, when you do handouts, what do we create? We start to create another America, you know? But if you teach people a skill and a trade and how they can function on our own, that's how you change a nation. That's amazing. That's incredible. I love that you just said that. Yeah. Where are you headed from here? You know, well, I'll be uh, I'll be back in the Congo here soon. So right now, we'll, I fly when I fly from the U.S. I fly from my office in Pennsylvania, which is a bike shop. It's run by my brother and then another young lady. I'll fly from there to Ethiopia. I'll spend a few days in Ethiopia. We have a really big project there that we might end up selling. It's been hard raising money for this project. Six six-story building almost finished. Uh, and then I'll fly from there back to Uganda. I'll go into Congo to do some work there in the South Sudan. I mean, Africa is my home now. What, <clears throat> what are you doing down in the Congo? You know, the Congo, we are preparing to rescue children and take any children that are rescued by the government and give them a safe haven to go to. But the biggest thing is these children gotta really be mentally evaluated. They gotta be worked with. It's gonna take some time because of what they've been made to do. 
and not only made to do, but what they have seen, you know. So it's, it's gonna be a long process in the Congo. Do you foresee your organization opening orphanages and churches and? No, we'll stay on the Ugandan side. Okay. You know, uh, Ugandan side, I love Uganda. Like I said, it's the land of milk and honey. Everybody knows me, everybody trusts me. I'm not like other NGOs, you know, and I don't want NGOs to get upset with me saying this, but NGOs a lot of times follow the news because where the news is, the money is, you know, and, and I've been a proven NGO that I came to East Africa and now it's my home. I'm not going nowhere. How long have you considered that home? Uh, you know, I've been married to my wife, Justine, for uh, uh, three years now, and I, I've, been, I've been basically living there full-time for about seven years now. Yeah. No, you don't miss the U.S. at all? No, you know, uh, you know everyone used to say, well, I miss this, I miss that. I got an upper-class restaurant that everything that I miss, I make there. You know, so, and, and I think the, the biggest food that I love is sushi. I love sushi, man. I, I just go crazy over sushi. And if you look in Kampala right now, there's probably 13 Japanese restaurants in Kampala. And I get a kick out of missionaries. They'll say, I'm going to Uganda to preach the gospel. I always ask them, where are you going? And they say, Kampala. We're going into Kampala to preach. And and I kind of laugh because when I went there, there was no Pizza Hut. Now there's Pizza Hut. There's like 12 Kentucky Fried Chickens. There's two McDonald's. Everything is there, you know. But I spend most of my time to this day in the bush. And uh, I love the bush. I think a man like you that has fought for our country and dedicated years of your life, you know, you always got to a piece of wanting to be there, you know. For me, I've been blessed enough to live there and have a wife that loves living there with me, you know. So I'll be there the rest of my life. <clears throat> with these mission trips, I saw on your website that um, you host mission trips. Yeah, we host mission trips. That's through Angels of East Africa. Our organization, the nonprofit name is Angels of East Africa USA. Now, we have an Angels of East Africa, Poland, Angels of East Africa, UK, uh, Angels of East Africa, Germany. There's several offices around the world because when I do world tours and you take money out of them countries, you got to have nonprofits. And then there's an Angels of East Africa, Uganda. So we, we, we meet people around the world that will go on these mission trips. So that's all run through Angels of East Africa. I have no doings with none of them. You know, I don't like being around people, <laughs> you know. So the only thing that I do when you get there, the, the, uh, the company that I have, I run and I own and run an armed security company. So we make sure, and I'm usually the face you'll see, I make sure you get from point A to point B. You know, I make sure you get to all the, all the projects. So people can come in, you know, and there's always people, they want to come in and get a gun in their hand and go fight. That's the last thing you should want to do. I, I tell people all the time, that ain't ever going to happen. But what can happen is you can get one of these children that were, that was harmed or, 
or hurt really bad and you can hold them in your arms and you can love on them. That takes more of a man and a woman to do that than it does to pick up a gun and go hurt somebody. I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. <clears throat> well, Sam, I just, you're just an incredible human being. Oh, really praise God. Are. Yeah. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming out. Yeah. And, and uh, I want to invite you to Africa. Maybe, maybe for you not to come to Africa on a mission trip, maybe for you to come on a visit. And we do some of these set downs in Africa. And I get you to sit down with Ding. I get you to sit down with Peter and get you to sit down with some of the people in the bush. And I think it'd be a really, really good show, man. And uh, Well, I got to tell you, it's funny that you mentioned that. Because yeah. on my way over here, I called a friend of mine. He's yeah. been on this show. He painted these paintings. His name's yeah. Justin Hughes. And I asked him if he would be willing to go over there with me if we got an invite. Yeah. And... uh He's a former SEAL as well. Yeah, I think it would be good for you. Yeah, I think it would be good for you, be good for your show. I mean, you're not hearing from, from me. You're hearing from victims. You're hearing from people that still there fighting, fighting the fight. You know, you can hear from my wife. You know, a lot of Africans, they want to marry a Mzungu because it's like a ticket out. And if, if you interviewed my wife, she would tell you, oh, I can't. I can't leave, you know. And uh, at, 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 at my motorcycle shop, I own 15 acres of ground there, and I was going to build a nice house and everything there, you know. And my wife, when she was over here about a year ago, she said, Sam, she said, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but she said, you don't need to build that house for me because I can never come to America to live. She said, you know, our work is in Africa. So, I, I mean, I, at least I know I got the right wife because, you know, she doesn't want a ticket to America. Maybe to visit, you know. She was just in Germany and Italy and Switzerland with me speaking, and, and, and we had a good time, but our home is Africa, and that's where we work. Well, I would... Uh... I would love to take up on that invite. Yeah, I think too. it would be really good. Yeah, I, yeah, I think it. I, I could see you, you know, setting your cameras up and doing your thing there. Yeah. Where can people find you? Where do they donate? You, you know, the the easiest way to find me is just remember the name Machine Gun Preacher. You know, I can sit here and tell you Angels of East Africa. You'll be trying to write it down, and you're going to mess it up. But everything to find me is just machine gun preacher. And that's pretty simple. Most people can remember it. You Google machine gun preacher, that's the name of our website. That's how you get a hold of me. My main office is in uh, outside of Central City, Pennsylvania. And it's a motorcycle shop. We build custom motorcycles. There's actually a small clothing line of machine gun preacher clothing. And people say, what, you know, and it does about a half a million dollars of sales a year, you know. So you can go online, you can go on to Facebook, you know, Google Machine Gun Preacher, or, or my name, Sam Childers. But our work is done because of people like you out there, you know. And I, I challenge people, look into the, if you have a nonprofit that you're financing, there's a few questions you need to ask them. Ask what the CEO makes. You have every right to ask. 
You know, ask how much on a dollar is spent in the field. You have every right to ask. If people don't want to ask you financial questions for a nonprofit, then don't support them. And uh, we need your help. Machine Gun Preacher. All right. We'll link everything below as well. That yeah. way it's easy for them to find as well. And, and um, Sam, I just wish you the best of luck. And, and, and thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. It's been a real honor. And uh, hopefully the next time I see you, it'll be in another hemisphere. All right. Thank you. God bless. God bless you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to The Sean Ryan Show. If you haven't already, please take a minute, head over to iTunes, and leave The Sean Ryan Show a review. We read every review that comes through, and we really appreciate the support. It's time to get away in a new Hyundai vehicle during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event at Woodhouse Hyundai. The Hyundai lineup of sedans and SUVs has the capability you need and technology and features you want, like the all-new 2023 Hyundai Palisade and Hyundai Tucson. This holiday season, get into a vehicle that will give you confidence with Hyundai Owner Assurance, America's best 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty. Visit us online at woodhousehyundaiofomaha.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.